Hey, folks, back here on the fourth floor with representative, newly elected representative Sarah Hannon. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you. Love the view. You got one of the views. I've got the view up to the mountains. Very nice. Um, I've been wanting to do the podcast with you since I've been here because you're the one of the Juno reps. Yep. We're sitting in my district. What? So you you represent the legislative capital building. Capital buildings in the district. So from uh, Midtown Juno, if you've been to Costco, Lemon Creek area, Mm -hmm. I say from Lemon Creek to Thane. And then all of Douglas Island, and then the district also then jumps north up Lynn Canal and includes Haines, Skagway, Klekwan, Excursion Inlet, and to the west to Gustavus. Well, so you have some interesting door-to-door probably. You have the ferries, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not a district that you can walk the neighborhoods every night. Um, it, it's actually, so like North Douglas or Thane, those are neighborhoods that are stretched out along mm-hmm. the road as opposed to neighborhoods. Yeah, see, at Anchorage, I've run a couple times and unsuccessfully, but it's... Uh, very easy to just you can drive across the district in five you know five minutes right and mine is going straight on the highway or something my district has four school districts in it for instance you know so uh one of the things on the floor the last few days everybody's sending handwritten notes to all their graduates and i thought well i've got four school districts and Mm -hmm. i didn't get all my (laughs) it's on my list for next year but you know better start about three months earlier get, get on it yeah um so let's talk a bit about um you, so we were talking before we started, you actually grew up in Anchorage. I grew up in Anchorage. Um, first came to Juneau doing student, doing athletics. I was a swimmer, competitive swimmer, and um, was always struck by the beautiful setting that Juno's in. And uh, for an Anchorage kid, when he came to Juneau, I always describe it as these quaint old houses, you know, and if you're from the East Coast of the United States, this isn't old, but these are 100-year-old houses. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. growing up in Anchorage in the 60s and 70s, things weren't much older than the 64 earthquake. There were a few pockets of old houses still, but pretty much, you know, it's a mid-century community, and it's that sprawling post-earthquake architecture of of suburban America that's not so attractive. And so I always, uh, from the very first time I came to Juneau, really, really liked the community setting and the community So it was for sports, you said? For sports. As a student athlete, I was a competitive swimmer. So I think I first came here with a swim team trip. Was it, uh, isn't Mia Costello, Senator Costello, a swimmer? Senator Costello is one of the top swimmers to ever come out of Alaska, qualified for the Olympics. Um, she, Andy Josephson, and I all swam on the same age group team. I'm, I'm older. I was a senior in high school when Andy was a freshman, and I think I'm about 10 years older than Mia, but we were on the same age group competitive team. Wow, so now you're... Yeah, now, so I've known, I've known Mia since you know, she was a little kid on the team. But now, they're, now they're your colleagues in the building. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and Mia and I have kept in touch through the years. When she graduated college at Harvard, she came to Juneau. I was already living here. Um, I was doing some political work at the time. It was before I was in the classroom at the Juno School District. And um, she worked for the Murkowski administration and then decided to become a teacher and went through the program at UAS and taught at Juno Douglas High School, did her student teaching there. And I, didn't, I didn't even know that she did no. that. Yeah, before she moved back to Anchorage. So you moved You moved to Juneau. You're, you're political, uh, I'm, legislative? I originally lived in Juneau as an adult, seasonally, working for the legislature for Senator Kurtula. Um, so Representative Kurtula, it was her father. Her father, okay. I worked for her father. Her father, 
is John Marcatula, and he represented Palmer in the legislature for about 30 years. Well, he's like a Lyman Hoffman level, 30, yeah. 30 years. Yeah, and it was in the days um, Beth and her sister, Anne, uh, graduated from both Palmer High School and Juno Douglas High School because in those days, the legislature wasn't limited in time. And so almost every legislator brought their families with them. And so the kids, you know, they'd go to fall semesters in their home districts and then they'd move to Juno in January. That must have been really tough for yeah. kids. Well, you know, it's it's a pattern and a routine. And one of the things I've noticed as a community member, when we then limited, when I first moved here, the session was still not limited. Um, so when was some, that? In the early 80s. Um, I think I I think my mailing address in Juno started in 1984. That's that's when I was born, 84. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of money back then. M- money and time and the session would go to June some years and people brought their whole families. And then it was, you know, the late 80s when we first limited it to 120 days before we then had a 90-day proposal. But it, it kind of changed the flavor because people didn't bring their whole family mm-hmm. with them. Um, what, what, what were you doing? Were you just like a I was partisan? A staffer. You were working for um, Senator Cotula? Yep. Senator Cotula was the um, president of the Senate for six or eight years. And I, I worked for him for a couple of sessions. Did you uh, did you know him or how, how did you get the... I first met... I, was, uh, I went to college in Fairbanks at UAF and I was the student regent and met him doing that. He was a big uh, advocate for the University of Alaska's system and especially research. Uh, you know, he was the Beth Curtula's family. Senator Curtula was one of the colonial families that came up in the 30s in the Great Depression when farmers from other parts of the U.S. were given free land to come to Palmer. Mm-hmm. And so um, Beth's dad was a Palmer original colonist and really believed in the future of you know, how do you develop an undeveloped land? Well, you need research, and um, the agriculture research station in Palmer was a pet project of his to say, you know, you don't want to just research atmospheric science. You want land development, um, and it's a land-grant university. And Mm -hmm. so I met him as a student regent, and then he offered me a job to come down for the session. And so for a couple of years... What was your reaction? Like, great, ooh, great. Yeah, I, you know, it was... It's it's an interesting environment, you know. You've been here and seen very interesting ecosystem here. It's an ecosystem, and if you know, I was in my twenties, and so it's a happening thing. Were you married or oh no, I was I was single and in my twenties, and Juno's a happening place, and it is is happening here. Yeah, true. It's a fun place. It's a fun place, and lots going on, and um, you know, I could by then I was living in Fairbanks, where you you need a car to drive anywhere, and Juno has always had this ability that you could live downtown, work downtown. There were two big grocery stores downtown. The post office was downtown. Yeah, I, mean, I stay at the Driftwood. I just walk through the walk up the stairs or walk through the office building and yeah, boom. Yeah, and you're you know there's a grocery store if you want it. There's restaurants and Juno always had because of it being a capital city. Um, nicer restaurants. It was before Anchorage had nice restaurants. Yeah, were, people were talking. Actually, it was it. Dinner a few nights ago, and some friend was visiting, and he was like, "Man, there's some really good you know, food here." And then somebody was saying, "You know, back in Anchorage, before all the chains and stuff came, and the he grew up in the '90s, it was like a kind of a big deal to go to like Simon and Seaford's." But they said in Juno was always kind of nice places to there's go. There's always been nice restaurants, and there were always um, little boutique shops, you know, high end gift stores. 
at that point in the 80s and early 90s, cruise ship travel was a pretty elite style of travel. I was going to say, back then it was a lot more expensive to, it to was, do it. Yeah. So when I first came here to live in the 80s, one of the things I was struck by is the tourism shops that were serving, you know, they were there because of cruise ship tourism. They were high-end art galleries. They were selling $10,000 pieces of art on a daily basis because the kinds of people who could, you know, it, was, it wasn't the QE2 came here, but it was that caliber of travel. Now you can do a cruise like for it's, like a week for like 500 bucks maybe. Yeah, now it's discount travel. Um, you know, it's the cheapest way for a family to go on a vacation. I, I've read a, a article. Uh, so these ships, you know, they, they're geographical. So some are in Alaska and the Caribbean and South America. Yeah. So they have to move, you know. So there's uh, this guy wrote this thing where he basically they'll, you, you can get on a cruise when it's going from let's say, Alaska to the Caribbean. And nobody's on it really. It's not really like a cruise with the shows and everything. But they sell they sell tickets, right? right? So this guy for I think it was like a year. He just rode these cruise ships around the world, and he stayed at almost nothing, right? Doing it, their discount times, do, doing just their their, their hauls, transfers, transfers, and it was just fascinating because it was like there wasn't the you know cruise party vibe, yeah. but he could he could live there for very cheap. Yeah, no, and, there's and travel and see stuff, travel and see stuff, and it's still I've never worked directly in the tourism industry here, but I know that anyone who does. They could tell you which are the, you know kind of the price point that each of the cruise mm-hmm. cruisers on that ship are. They even they even know like where those boats come from. Where oh they yeah, go. that's and that's. All... I lived in Skagway for uh, a, a <laughs> okay. summer back in two thousand eight. My friend that had a, a tourist business, and I forget now, but I remember like the Veendom and the Wind. Like I remember talking to the crew every time, like every week, and then you know exactly where the boat was going, and you know who the passenger, like what they were going to buy, kind of. And, yep. Yeah, yeah, very all, predictable. Yeah, very predictable, very targeted in whether, you know, whether they're going to be buying T-shirts and coffee mugs or whether they're going to go into the jewelry stores. Yeah, the other funny thing I kind of learned is, you know, like the diamond and the jewelry shops and the fur shops. So the, the fur people are come mostly Alaskan type companies, but <sighs> the workers come from like, they, they, they chase the boats, right? So you right. got these like guys from India that sold rugs. They go to the Caribbean, they have a store. You got these other kind of like guys... Some Arab guys that were selling like diamonds and they, they, they go to the Caribbean, they go to South right. America. So they kind of fall. They aren't even mostly a lot of them aren't Alaskans. Oh, they just come hardly and, any of them are. And they're selling stuff that's like they have the. It's never, remember, been, it's never been I, to Alaska. I, Rolex watches. I, I remember they had the um, the one they would call it like the um, the Northern Lights diamond. Uh, it was like a diamond or like a gem. It was like the Northern Lights. And I remember being like, what association does that? Oh, it kind of looks like, you know. It's like, right. <laughs> Right. Well, um, it's really it's really fascinating kind of economy. How those... It's absolutely one of the so there is a Juno business that um, the Alaska Fudge Company. Downtown, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and they I know about that place when they started the parents because now it's owned by, you know, the next generation. And um, but the parents, they were here seasonally and they then had a place in the Caribbean and they were one of the, you know, but they lived here and then well, they had kids and then they, you know, became seasonal. But they had a store here, a store Skagway, a store in the Caribbean and they were migratory. Like the, in anything Alaska, it's a cottage industry, you know, with yeah. anything Alaska, even now it's probably more so, but yeah. I think people are kind of fascinated with Alaska Yeah, when they and, see something. Well, yeah, but it is it is strange to me as a person who is not a cruise ship traveler and I'm I'm a traveler but I'm never done a cruise ship and it's not really my style or inkling but the whole uh clearly the marketing of what you buy the idea that you're going to buy Tanzanites and Rolex mm-hmm. and Swiss watches when you're on a cruise and 
there's serious money. I mean, they well, pay the rent on those buildings and they buy those buildings and keep them shuttered for six months a year. So there is, you know, basic economics tell us there's serious money transferring well, what, hands and those are marketed to people and people on certain cruises, that's what they want to buy. When I was in Skagway, it was um, very interesting because it was 08 I lived there for the summer okay. and it was a kind of peak of the global financial crisis when it was really, well, not peak, but it was starting. Right. And, and it was also the time when the Australian dollar was at par with the American dollar. So there was a lot of Australians and other folks, New Zealanders, Kiwis, Europeans that were on the cruise. And normally it's more heavy American, I was told. So the Americans tend to be more spendy and buy a Rolex and whatever, buy diamonds or a fur jacket, much more so than the Australians or the Europeans. So they were really struggling because they weren't getting the same kind of buyers they normally would be getting in the you know, kind of financial crisis. And then you get these... Aussies for them, it's like, oh my God, they get a ticket because the dollar used to be at 30, 70 cents. Now it's at par. Right. But they were frustrated because they weren't getting the sales they used to normally get. Right. And one of the things I had seen when Australians were traveling here, and it was kind of funny, you know, because there's always the crew off of ships and there's certain stores mm -hmm. that the crew are going to. And whether you're from Indonesia and you're going, you know, and then there's the entertainment and that kind of crew off of ships. And then there's the officers and navigation crew. I've, I've um, noticed there's like, it's like, it's almost like a hierarchy. The, the you know, Scandinavians and British that are kind of the, the captains, and off, and then you got you know you got the Russian kind of people working the stores, Ukrainians, right? You got the Americans doing maybe the kind of the entertainment side. Yeah. It's like all kind of it's almost like a class. Oh yeah, and there's a couple of books, novels written about the caste system. Caste, yeah, yeah, caste. and but you'd uh, the Australians, you started to see that they were going and shopping like more like the crew were. And they, at that point, we still had a department store here in town that had a Clinique, um, an Estee Lauder mm -hmm. stuff. And the Australian women are in there buying uh, body, you know, makeup and cologne and stuff. And you're like, why are, they? well, the duties in Australia were so high. Yeah. They're buying personal care products to take with, you know, which, Again, it has nothing to do with Alaska, and you wouldn't think of it as part of our economy. Two birds with one stone. Yeah, you know, but they're on it, and you're not having to pay for it in the air baggage. But they said, oh, yeah. In fact, I might be buying, um, it was uh, laundry soap, some kind of brand of laundry soap. So they're going to Costco to buy that because they can take it home to Australia, and it was still going to so, be cheaper. So strange. <laughs> and it was like, the trinkets you bought in America on your Alaskan cruise are housewares. Yeah. So um, I didn't even plan to talk about the. That's a yeah. good good discussion topic. Yeah. So you became a teacher here. I yep. Yeah, uh, I, I graduated from college with a degree and teacher certification in 1985, and I taught high school for one year at Mount Edgecombe High School in Sitka, the state-operated boarding school. Mm -hmm. And um, then I moved back to Juneau, and in the Mid-80s, getting a teaching job in Alaska was a really competitive thing, and I spent about 10 years working here in Juneau without being a teacher. And well, there was the student loan repayment. Is that going on oh, back then? Oh, yeah, student loan repayment, and I worked and did stuff affiliated with the Capitol, but um, still kept up my teacher certification. And then in 1996, there was a, a retirement incentive for teachers in Alaska, and Probably those uh, tours want tiers tier one, one, right? Tiers tier Ooh, one. Those were those are the good ones. Hired those them the good out, ones. and so then I got hired at Juno Douglas High School and stayed there for twenty years. It's funny because um, I know many of the staffers in the building, um, like Forrest and other, and like you were their teachers. Yeah. You were their teacher. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. And I so how many how many other 
Oh, I mean, I'd it, say probably about a half a dozen. Probably. Are they ever like, oh, Miss Hannon, oh my God. <laughs> oh, it's even better because, well, I was a student council advisor. Um, Forrest was one of my student council students. Of course he was. Yeah, yeah. of course he was. That's why he's here. <laughs> um, Greg Smith. Interesting. Greg helped me get started on my campaign. He was working as a staffer and I needed, you know, when you... I was, I'd been out of it. I hadn't worked on a campaign in 20 years. I'd worked on campaigns in the 80s and early 90s, but the world had changed by the time I was deciding to become a candidate. And uh, I always, I had the reputation as the meanest teacher ever, and I had very strict protocols. And one of the I things- I could see you as being stern teacher. I could oh, yeah. see that. Oh, yeah. And I, one of my, I don't take late homework. I give you, uh, dock your grade if you came late to class for tardies and for absences. And like audit, um, you're like a dictator. Yeah. In the classroom. And uh, at the beginning, though, I, Greg was giving me advice and we we're sort of meeting once a week and he'd give me assignments of, you know, have A, B and C done by the next time we talk about your campaign. And I'd, you know, meet with him a week later because I was still working. And he um, said, you know, did you get A, B and C done? And I'd go, oh, I looked at A and I thought about B and I started on C and Almost verbatim, he'd say, now, what is our policy on late work? This is not busy work. This is about sequential production so that you have the... And it was the lecture in NAG that I had given my classroom for 20 years. And he had, you know, he'd been graduated from high school 15 years, and it came out of his mouth on a heartbeat. What what did you teach? What what grades? I I taught 11th and 12th grade. Oh, so you you taught them when they were just, when they were in high school, just about to leave. Right. Couldn't scar them too much, but um, yeah, I taught American government and psychology, and then usually one uh, one rotation of history. So some years American history, some years world history, some years Alaska history, and then the last five years. You probably know Stephen Haycox then, right? Oh yeah, he, I, t- I have a history degree from UA. From I actually U- took AP US, and I grew up in New Mexico, but I love okay. history. I've always loved it, so I took AP US history. I got fives. Nice. I don't want to brag or anything, but yeah, I got some college credit for that. But yeah, I remember Stephen Hake. I took history of Alaska, and several classes with him. And um, he was a fascinatingly smart guy. You know, we yeah we 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 used to butt heads. I used to be I'm I'm kind of center right. I'd call myself, but I used to be when I was younger, maybe a lot much more conservative. And he's kind of on the other end. You know, we used to right. get in kind of really inter- entertaining kind of discussion matches um, in the classroom. But he's just his understanding of Alaska history is just unlike it. I was doing a podcast with Bill Wilkowski a couple of days ago. We were talking about. Um, when Sarah Palin got big and they were trying to figure out who to talk to and I'm watching like I think it was like Fox or CNN and all of a sudden I see Stephen Haycox and they're talking about like Alaska and and political history and Alaska and Palin I'm like what's he doing there he's my professor from right UA yeah and that's yeah that it's interesting as you get older you understand more the importance of history of how much you can learn from it and apply and that you know if you if you just view things from the current circumstance that you have very little knowledge you know you have to you know it's it's a, my frustration is is nowadays i feel like that there's a lack of and you're a teacher you probably know there's a lack of appreciation understanding of history even government you taught american government I, I i'm just really frustrated when i talk to younger people and they just don't have even uh, even the concept sometimes of how this our system works oh yeah no it's <laughs> i one of the things that has been sort of alarming to me as an elected official um, is when people write to you, and not that's not the alarming part, it's that they'll say things like, you have to do what the governor said. Yeah, I was just going to say that example. You, of- you know, and that's one of those examples of, I, you know, the teacher voice in me is go, 
well, no, I'm in a separate branch of government, and the whole idea of checks and balances is you elect an executive and you have a legislative branch, and it, it actually historically doesn't pan out well when all three branches of government have exactly the same viewpoint. You I was get just a, talking on that same podcast with Senator Wilkowski when you had Republican legislatures, House, Senate, Republican governor, you, you end up getting a lot of legislation passed and a lot of it's not, not good, it gets challenged, it gets thrown out. It's kind of ideological sometimes. Right, right. And um, yeah, I think split government, I, I, I do think you get what, what comes out of it is stuff that's compromised. Yeah, no, and you know, things like you know, our president saying things like, who do those judges think they are making these decisions that change the interpretation? Yeah, no, the, like, the, the, that's their definition of their job. The attack on the judiciary. I mean, it's 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 kind of, to me, alarming how many people, um, actually on both sides, even of the political the extremes, who would kind of, I think, prefer or want to live in, in a dictatorship or an autocracy where one person makes the decisions. Because if as long as it's their person, well, as which I, is the dangers of... Because yeah. then somebody else becomes that and they, yeah. you know, do bad things if you look at their history. Well, I always would, in my government class, one of my first lectures would be, you know, what's what's the most efficient for getting things done form of government? It's a dictatorship. Hmm. And I would say most families run as a dictatorship. Whether there's an illusion that you have an input in it, you know, every kid knows who the final authority is, whether it's mom, dad, grandma that makes the decision. What's the least efficient form of government? Well, a democracy and a pure democracy. Imagine if you voted on every. Well, Switzerland element. does uh, parts of Switzerland. The Canton system. They have a direct. They get yeah. together. They all in this town square. They raise their hand. They vote. Right. And then, you know, you'd, you'd say to kid, what if your family, what if there's five kids there and you figured out that you got to vote on dinner every night? What would, you know, would you make mm-hmm. the best decision or is, you know, five kids in the house or you're likely to vote for pizza and ice well, cream there, every day? There's that cartoon, you know, it's a democracy is five wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, exactly. The, uh, it's funny you said about the dictatorship because there's that famous George Bush quote, you know, where he's like, this would be a lot easier if it was a dictatorship. Right. As long as I'm a dictator. <laughs> right. As long as I get to decide what to do, you know, I, and I would always distill it to kids. I'd say, what's a dictatorship? And in my, I grew up with um, only sisters. So my dad was. You're the, you're the middle, middle, the middle one because sister. we you just heard... told stories at the mudrooms and you told yeah. the story that night. I told the story that night. Yeah. So that's how you're, you got a really good story, by the way. Thank you. Yours was too. Pretty funny. And Speedogate. Speedogate. And all I could think of is every German tourist, every Russian tourist. They're like, the yeah. Mid- that's of no, course there's. You know, one thing I left out of the story, and I've, so, I'm so mad I forgot it. A lot of the, lot of the girls I met in, in Vegas with pictures were Australians in one group. And they, at the time, were posting pictures saying, oh, you know, our prime minister, Tony Abbott, goes to the beach every day in a Speedo. Right. Like, he's our prime minister. What's, right. what's wrong it's with not- you people? <laughs> Yeah. Very it, confused. It's a America's strange like that. How about that one guy's story? I don't even want to say oh, it, but that, yeah. <laughs> there was one that was, whew, that was Sex education, that's the all. most strangest, shocking thing I've ever heard in a room that uh, unexpected, you know? Yeah. Was, well, if you have time, Mudrooms has been in existence for eight years. Yeah, yeah. All of um, the stories, except for the first broadcast from the first season, are on the webpage archived. Yeah, same with Arctic Entries in Anchorage. Yeah, they, yeah. They do that. and... There's an amazing assortment of stories. Um, it's a cool event. It's a very cool event. The, con- uh, the moth, I think, is the kind of yeah, the yeah. That's that's what it's concept. modeled after. Um, and I I was on their board for a couple years. I've told stories seven seasons. 
Um, See, Anchorage, they, I don't know. I, it's a one they, lifetime. They have a one limit. time, and I keep. I'm. In, I'm. I might actually get involved more with them next season. Um, but it's like Anchorage is. I guess it's so big. You have more people available and new people. Yeah. So maybe it's a little easier. But there's so many folks who have really compelling, great story. More than one. Right. So maybe right. they should look at maybe lifting yep. that sometime. No, I yeah. The first season that Mudrooms existed, I was. Um, I never went. We always they broadcast them on K2 radio after their, you know, the night of live events. And that first season, my husband started going to the live events and I would wait for them to be broadcast and lay on the couch and listen to them. And then by the second season, um, some friends told me I needed to tell the story of meeting my husband. We eloped after three dates. Really? Yeah. You met him in Juneau or? I met him here in Juneau. What was he, what was he doing? He was a fisheries biologist. We had had parallel lives for almost 20 years, but had never met. My husband um, met... <laughs> Bryce Edgman taught my husband to smoke salmon out in the Nishigak on Bristol Bay when my husband worked as a fly fishing guide at a lodge, and they were in their early 20s. No way. And one of the jokes I, I have said about Bryce is, Bryce is responsible for me eloping with this guy because one of the reasons I fell in love with him was his fish smoking abilities. And now you're in the caucus and, with Bryce at the speaker now, Yeah. Wow, that's um, a very... That's a little, it's a very... Only in Alaska. Only in Alaska. Um, yeah, we'd had parallel lives. But that story, my friends had heard that story and they were like, you got to go tell that at Mudrooms. And then once I went in person and told a story... Um, you know, and a live event has so much of a different energy oh, yeah, than yeah. recorded. I mean, Mudrooms does a ex- great job and listening to the archive stories is fun and interesting. But when you're there, that the audience interaction, you know, if you... No, I thrive on that. For yeah. I've done stories at Arctic Entries and I actually did another... They have a kind of an after hours, uh, you know, no, no kids deal at Beartooth. Yes. And for, those, for that one, they allow us repeat storyteller. So I did one a story there about when I got kidnapped at gunpoint in Ukraine. It's a true story. And uh that was a lot more I just love that audience that energy right. and the feedback and the you know the, how they react. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. And you know clearly that the story event that we both told on the other night there were a couple of stories that were very personal. Yeah, the one actually she works in the le- the legislature. Red, yeah, the legislature for the Senate finance. That yeah. was a very almost pin drop. Right. And when you hear it on the radio, that some of that emotion will be there, but to be in yeah, the room you, where you're experiencing it, you're sharing you the pain that, and the trauma. That's just like not pain at well, maybe a little bit. That's just like being in Juno because you watch it on gavel and you see one thing. But for me, being in the building for four months and being in the committee rooms and being after the you know house gets you, the energy and the interactions and how people talk and the conversation, it's just like night and day. Yeah. Than watching yeah. it on gavel. Well, and it reminds us, um, I'm not a huge fan of written communication, you know, texting, because so much of what we truly communicate is not just the words we use. Mm -hmm. And if you've taken them not just out of how we speak them, but how we write them. um, But so much of what we communicate is nonverbal. And when you just put it down in text, you don't have the tone and the emotion that goes with it, and there's, you interpret it. There's been uh, many a misinterpretation of text messages between people oh, yeah. that you hear about. Um, one more thing I want to ask. I, I believe I'm correct. You took over You took over the seat that Sam Keto didn't run for, right? Correct. Okay, so yeah. that was an open... So you and then Andy Story and then... 
um, Jessica, Jessica Keel. Keel. You guys, this district has all new representation. All new representation. The only one in the state with all three. All three, um, absolutely. And it's a funny thing because this district, has, the Juno seats historically have very little turnover. When people get in the seats, they're there for yeah, a day. Dennis de- Egan. Dennis Egan was um Beth Curtula was there till she resigned and went to so, work at the White House. So and, I was going to ask about when you mentioned her dad. She went to the White House for Obama administration. Wasn't there like a, a scandal? Wasn't there a kind of a um, some tension between Governor Palin picking her replacement? I, yeah. recall, I recall something yeah. happened with that. Yeah, and it was because Dennis ended up being appointed to that seat. Um, so that Senate seat became open. She had been the longtime House member in the seat, and you know to fill a vacancy. Um, when a, a House seat becomes open, or a legislative seat becomes open, the party whose seat it was is to submit at least three names. At least three names, and then the name is selected. But you know, the governor doesn't have to pick from that list. Did you know that? Well, I didn't know that we, until a couple of years that's ago. That's one of those. It's one of those where the rule doesn't say that, but the past practice has always been that. Right. But, um, but and because then there's a check on it after the governor appoints. Then the party, members of the party, members of the party that are elected, have to affirm that they mm-hmm. accept that nominee. You, you, you know, I've been meaning to find the answer to this. Maybe you know, if the member is um, non undeclared or independent, what happens then? I've always wondered. I, I've well, not been able to figure that out. We it hasn't happened, so we haven't had to figure it out. Because because remember Walker when the Republicans kind of over Dunleavy's deal they it got crazy I was at the meeting it was wild just the whole thing was wild but they sent him some kind of names that were really kind of some were a little out there so he picked the Kawaki guy he went off list right and the party like flipped right so then Walker said give attempt, me names again in an attempt to kind of I think kind of say okay here you go he picked this really like crazy guy like who was on Facebook saying wild wild. And then I remember that you remember the whole thing. It was a big kind of scandal that erupted. But yeah, and that's where you you go. Um, the rules of democracy, if, you know, and people always want to quote the Constitution, and well, they're kind of broad. And then much of what we do and how we carry it out, it's not the formal written; it's the past practice. Yeah, the, the president. Yeah, the precedents that have been set, and we accept. You know, and that's part of democracy, of representative democracy, that you're not making up the rules as you go along. You accept, and if you get challenged over it of, like, we want to interpret it differently, then you start to have to write more of them down, and then that drives you into sort of putting these constraints that are set in time. You know, whether people want to argue about whether the Second Amendment means every one of us have the right to unlimited and unconstrained use of every kind of armament and machinery. Yeah, I mean, some, some people or have, whether have made jokes a, like, do, do we get a tank? Do right. we get a nuke? You know, like, right. Not even a joke. It's like, what? what's the rule? Because back then there was muskets. That was the weapon. Right. Now that we have right. crazy and technology with weapons. And it was implied that it was a militia versus an individual right. And, you know, We've been debating that for over 200 years, and in the 21st century, it's a pretty contentious debate. So you'll appreciate this. No, you know this, I'm sure, no government, no society government in the history of our written kind of history in the world has lasted more than 300 years, and that was Rome. And we're coming up on, what, 250, 76, 250. Yeah. Kind of, kind of scary to think about. No, nobody's, oh, yeah. nobody's lasted more than 300 years. 
Well, I bet the Chinese would argue with us about that. But of course, you you're speaking the, to that their government has transformed. Well, no, if you, if you go back and look at the dynasties, right? No, nothing, not, not, no. nothing more, less than more than three hundred. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy to think about. I mean, the Soviet right. Union was only seventy right. years. You know, why Germany now? It's a new Germany from right. All these, all these cut France, all these countries. It's it's crazy to think about it. Right, you have to, you have to evolve to be responsive to what people want um but not you know of course the idea of our system of government is that these rules are there to protect the minority opinion because Mm -hmm. the majority opinion always has the power to carry forward their beliefs that's you know when you have the power you're not inclined to share it and our system of rules is that we're required to share power not you know so then there you get to dialogues of when people you know whether it's we want to vote before you have any taxes in Alaska. Well, I'm one of those that I think those are really poor constitutional amendments to place in that because you've elected people oh, yeah, to my, make... My thought is just get rid, of, get rid of the legislature and have the people vote on everything. On everything, and right. And then it's, that will be just right. not work. But not, you know, and that includes whether you're going to pave the road or mm-hmm. <laughs> have police or, you know, that's, that is the least efficient. And of course, that power of the purse is critical to anything else government does so if you give that over um it doesn't mean that you have better decisions in fact you probably have more chaos yeah you know over over over, i'm gonna do a little more time if you have we're over 30 minutes we've had a great discussion about awesome stuff um let's just do a little bit today's the first day of the special session um i I know there's a lot that we could do another hour here but um, it's the budget. It's it's the PFD. It's crime. I mean, maybe these. What's your thoughts on this special session and maybe some of these key controversial issues that are, um, you know, facing the legislature and the governor? Well, um, I ran on a platform like the governor of the belief that we have got to deal with our fiscal problems and not continue to spend savings. Now, from there. The opinions divide um, or diverge. Mm-hmm. I think that we can't continue to cut government. I think when we cut government and people say that they talk about bloated government, but then they say we want more police, we want more courts, we want more prisons, we want our roads plowed, we want more bridges. Um, without fully understanding, those are interesting. Uh, those are government conf- conflicting ideas. Yeah, and those are really expensive things. You know, developing infrastructure of government is an expensive thing. And it's, it becomes really easy for public to disparage um, public servants, you know, whether it's teachers or, uh, you know, PFD uh, clerks who receive those. Yet those are critical functions of government. You can't, dis- you can't manage the wealth of our sovereign wealth fund at the Permanent Foreign Corporation and distribute and share it if we don't have a whole bunch of employees that have some very specialized skills mm-hmm. to manage it. And, um, you know, anyone who ever wants to criticize a teacher, as you know, walk an hour in their shoes. I um, always said as a high school teacher, I wasn't afraid of teenagers, but a room of 25 five-year-olds, I think kindergarten teachers walk on water and the amount of energy and focus that it takes. And financially, well, you know, what you need to pay somebody to be in a room with 25 five-year-olds and teach them to read and write and tie their shoes and wipe their nose? I have some friends that teachers in Anchorage, and nowadays there's, depending where they teach in the, in the school, there's 
a lot of it's be- becoming so much more than teaching, you know, whether it's, you know, making sure a kid has gloves or food, you know, meal or all well, kinds of things that, you know, aren't about necessarily teaching. Well, absolutely. And the thing is, today in America, we educate a more diverse population than ever in recorded history. You know, a, a half a century ago, if your family was poor and you didn't attend school and your dad dropped, you know, was a high school dropout, nobody, nobody had concerns. Nobody, you, you, you still might be able to make a living for yourself. There might have been a manufacturing job or you could be a homesteader in Alaska and survive. Well, the 21st century requires a much more sophisticated skill set. We have a much more diverse population. We are not all wealthy Americans. We're all Americans. We're all in America, but we are not all wealthy Americans. And then we can get into, you know, I grew up at a time in the in the 70s where kids who had any kind of physical impairment, let alone a cognitive impairment, they didn't go to regular schools. You didn't have a blind child there. You didn't have a child who had a cognitive limitation. And our schools today attempt to provide the best services for every child that arrives on their doorstep. And the more we know, the more we come to understand it's really complex. And as we gain knowledge about what those differences are, fetal alcohol syndrome was new as a discovery when I was a teenager and first training to be a teacher. And that was something that you'd learned go, you know, kids who suffer from fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol effect, they struggle with cause and effect connections. And it's not that it's not that they're dumb and it's not that they, they they have impulsive behaviors that they're never going to be able to process the same way because neurologically they're very different. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I was talking, to, I don't know if you know Andy Holloman, he's on the Anchorage School Board. Absolutely. And I, years ago was just chat, chatting with him and I, I said um, something like, you know, we, we used to do so much better with, with results. And he goes, well, you know, we used to just say if you, uh, you have a disability or if you're, uh, you know, something's wrong with you you can't go to school you can't and, go to and school. i'll never forget i remember thinking about that and thinking you know what it's like that really makes you think about because right. it's true i mean used to be able to teach probably a bunch of kids that were just had no disabilities no problems parents fed them well they were mm-hmm. gonna go to yeah so things have changed and right yeah it well, just frustrates me how little teachers earn yeah and how well, important you know the, the role is yeah and when we talk about you know our achievement scores being low and we how do we compare to finland or how do we compare to russia and i lived and worked in russia and one of the things yeah we always uh, we, we yeah. govern in Paruski, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that you know one of the things that teachers would ask what's the difference between russian schools and american schools and the most obvious thing um and many european nations do this at the end of every year you're taking an exam test yeah that determines whether you proceed to the next year. And in Russia, one of the things, you're a five-year-old and you're taking an exam that dictates whether you can ever go to college. So whether you were a five-year-old who had a chronic medical condition and you did not achieve your first grade interest exam score, you are no longer ever gonna be on the track to go to university. So by the time you got my, my students, I was teaching at a high school, they were kids who had along the way, they were all university bound at a math science school, taking English as an elective because scientists needed to have multiple languages. And you'd go to, and they were called special schools. And I would think, these aren't 
you know, these are not kids with significant cognitive impairments, but they were put into a vocational track or they were put into a, a, a program where you've isolated them out and they were never, you know, and whatever the reason here in America, our belief is at any point you're going to catch up or have the opportunity and there, yeah, one shot at everything. Would you say there's, I I feel like there's some positive element to identifying, you know, okay, everybody's not going to be a scientist. Everybody's not going to be, you know, turning wrenches. We all have our own kind of unique skills and how our brains work. Is there some positive element in identifying Hey, you know, this this guy probably he doesn't belong in four years of college. He belongs in a trade school because that's what he's good at. Right. Or she's and, good at. Absolutely. And I think I I get frustrated when people say, Well, we don't do that in America today. And I'm like, Absolutely we do. That never went away. But we started as a country talking about college, college, college as if that would make, you know, transform. The ticket was you could go through that door. Um, I'm a first generation university attending. My parents were my mom grew up on a farm. Left the farm at 17, started heading west. My dad was from a working class family. And all three of my, the three children and my, myself and my two sisters, the three girls in my generation, we all went to university. And we were the first ones on either side of the family to go to college. And I graduated from high school in 1979. And I wanted to take a year off and go ski. Oh, nice. And my parents came unglued. Where'd you go? Um, Well, I didn't go skiing. You didn't go. (laughs) I had a. Should have gone. I should have gone. Well, probably it was it was a very wise decision. I had scholarships to go to a very nice liberal arts university. Um, I did not graduate from there, Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. I eventually transferred to UAF and graduated from there. But the idea, if I did not take that opportunity to go when it was there. In my parents' mind, that opportunity is there once, and you go well, now. I was the first. My parents didn't go to college. My dad was in the Navy. Mom kind of, they met when he was in the Navy, and he was at 25 years. Um, but he'd always tell me growing up, you know, you have to do better than I did. You have to go to get educated. And I think today there seems to be, by some people, almost a con- like contempt for like, oh, Oh, those educated people. Or do you, you notice that? Is that Absolutely. Some, like, oh, oh, you mean these elite educated elite folks. educated and disparaging of intellectuals or academics or thinking about it. And you go, that's how you make progress as a society. My dad used to always say, you have to do better than I did. Right. You have to go to college. You know, and he never told me what to do. Job. He just said right. you need to get education as the equalizer. You know. Right. Well, and I. Um, my husband comes from a big family that were uh, all of his siblings went to college and they were from a farming family. His grandparents, to, his uncles still own the dairy farm in upstate New York that his mom grew up on. Um, and we got a military side in there. And I have a sister-in-law who graduated from the Naval Academy, number three in her class and became a Navy pilot. And oh, wow. um, their belief, you know, when you, I think even the military where you go, why is there an enlisted group and what are the officers? And the expectation is that you've got some strategic thinkers. There is a role in every group. You to, yeah, you have to have a degree to be an officer. Yeah, and you, you better have some strategic there's a, thinking. There's a Russian saying, I, I know you're Russians, not perfect, but uh, maybe see if you understand it. Uchenya svet ani uchenya tima. You get that? I don't know, I don't know what svet means. Light. Okay. So, so basically... Um, with education is a light and like without education is a darkness. Okay. And it's yeah. really kind of, you know, yeah. popular kind of 
saying there. So yeah, you know, you, you get educated, you you get information, you get knowledge, you you can you can do more. You're yeah, and if you're not, you know, you can't do as much. Well, my very first trip to Russia, Juno is a sister city with Vladivostok, and I went over in 1990 on our sister city inaugural trip, and da 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 da, and we're staying at a hotel. Well, it was still um, Soviet Union. It was then. still the Soviet Union. Ooh, that must have been. And fun. we're in a, you know, it's this big deal. Vladivostok had been a closed city in the Soviet of the Union, Navy, yeah. right? And so here's a hundred Americans. We're all staying in the same hotel. We have, you know, you're going to sit at the same table every night. You're going to have the same waiter, the same busboy. And it was a couple nights in when the busboy, not even our waiter, says something effective. Who do you find as an American poet to both be like Chekhov? Do you find Walt Whitman? You know, and then he gets called away, and we immediately at our table, there's eight college-educated people with diverse backgrounds are huddling like, which American poets can you name? And every Russian who had graduated public school knew American poets, could quote them, spoke some English, you know, and you reflect on... Because at our table group, we had Ivy League educated, we had journalists, we had a lawyer, I was a teacher, and you're like, I don't know, I didn't take poetry in college, I can't remember what poets I studied in high school. For for all of the the bad that happened in the Soviet Union and for all the problems, there's two things that they kind of nailed, education and sports. Those are the two things they really, I mean, they put huge money into both of those things. Education, sports, and for the elite, medicine. Well, I mean, the I, medical- yeah, they, they had those academic, if you're an academic go to Doak, it's this place in kind of Siberia where they would just put scientists and doctors, and they'd put them there and they'd say, yeah. here's a good, good salary, go, do, go work. That's right. Well, and I was assaulted when I lived in Russia. And, oh, really? Oh, my yeah, gosh. Um, my... A lot of drinks, one of the problems in the drinking there. Over yeah, there and I problem. intervened on a rape in progress, and I was not raped. Um, I've oh, told my gosh. I've told the story at Mudrooms. Um, it's under haunted. Um, it's good, good, my good skull was My skull was fractured. I was severe. Oh, yeah, I was. On the street or? Uh, no, in the apartment I lived in. Um, the young woman in the house, there was, she had a young man over, and um, I woke up to a commotion, and I, you know, step out in the hallway and he's got her pinned against the wall and is attempting to sexually assault her and I don't realize that he's totally drunk and oh my god the violence and rage turns on me it's a long and sorted story but the so he, he hit you with something or oh um he was actually a, a military cadet and I didn't know how to fight and I thought you know just yelling was going to send him off but he attempted to break my neck and we lived in a concrete soviet Apartment yeah, all those building. buildings over there all yeah, concrete. concrete. Yeah, so, uh, so he slammed my head repeatedly into the corner of the building or the corner of the hallway and um, fractured my skull along it. The night of the assault, our our neighbor above us was actually a police officer, and he woke to the. He had a, a Soviet uh, military or a police dog. Um, so he came down. The dog heard us, and he came down. Um, we didn't have a phone in the apartment. We couldn't call. Was, was he like arrest? Was he put in jail? Oh yeah, the guy was arrested, convicted, went to prison, um, a- a- and usually after five years in prison, could have been sent to the Chechen war and probably died there. Um, but the night of the uh, att- the night of the assault, 
I ended up in just a regular people's hospital by ambulance, and I refused to stay. They didn't have a disposable needle. They didn't have a blood pressure cup. I, I had enough medical knowledge that I wasn't staying there. The next morning, the American consulate shows up and takes me. They say, you know, we need to get you to a hospital. And I was like, uh, well, I went last night, and it was a horrible nightmare to see that hospital. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to take you to the elite people's hospital. It was the communist officials' hospital. And he walked through the door. And then the night before, when I had arrived in an ambulance at the people's hospital, um, you know, it was third world conditions. There were gauze, blood stained in a bin on the floor. Mm-hmm. You know, the overhead light bulb was bare, and that's what they were using to see if I had a concussion, if my, you know, there was no steth, steth, he had a stethoscope, but no um, flashlight to check eyes, dilation. The next morning, delivered by the consulate to a modern 20th century hospital that had all the bells and whistles and free, every piece of it free. Um, I ended up coming home about six weeks after the assault, um, needing to, you know, wanted became concerned that perhaps the medical care wasn't adequate. I, I still refused to stay in the hospital there. So every day, I had a doctor arrive every morning, put an IV in, and every afternoon a nurse would come and take, you know. I had in-home medical care. Curtis, do you have a scar? Um, yeah, my skull probably has a scar, uh, but I... Luckily, unlike me, you have a lot of hair. So I have like, hair, yeah. Um, and I, I don't have any um, permanent debilitating actions from it, but I had a four-month recovery. So what year was that? 1992. That's right after the Soviet Union. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you spent quite a bit of time there. And- well, yeah. So back and forth for a couple of years and then spent a year there. But I, when I came home, thinking that I needed to see, because I started having some tremors, which I didn't really, um, you know, prior to intervening, going into the medical system, my Russian uh, vocabulary was all pleasantries and standard communication. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly I'm dealing with pretty sophisticated medical communication that I did not know. Um, and I- Yeah, it's been my problem. I speak Russian pretty well, but when you get in like a, like a medical discussion or a scientific dis- or any kind of thing with like specific word, I, I just kind of say, oof, yeah. gee, I don't know what's going, going yeah. on. And I, I was having tremors, which as I, you know, I come home to America to see a neurologist and- the, the translated medical records, he was like, oh, yeah, that's what we're doing. And he's like, well, the tremors are just a natural outgrowth of the nerves recovering. And you, you know, as they regrow and reattach, that you'll have some tremors. Yeah, like your hand was like? Um, I was having facial tremors. Oh. Um, and so I was fearful that, you know, something was wrong and that I'd had bad medical care. And instead, you know, the, the very expensive medical consulting with neurologists in Anchorage were like, no, you had great medical care. This is exact. Whoa, wow. Oh, this is amazing. Oh, your x-rays, your plans. I'm yeah. like, you know. Please pay and, me $3,000. Oh, it was $10,000 yeah. to see a neurologist twice in Anchorage in yeah. 1992. And, you know, they've been free in the Soviet Union. Yeah, no, I spent a lot of time in Russia and I've experienced their medical system. And sometimes, you know, you, you have something, you kind of realize it's not like always the best care. But, like, they have care. They have You care. know, a lot of countries, I think, you know, you're not going to get, you know, here we have this great quality of care, and, and it's really good, and people, you know, we have, ac- but not everybody has access to it. Right. And some people without, you know, insurance, they might, you know, they talk about, um, you know, waits and long lines. Sometimes people in this country wait for years or forever, or don't, because they don't have insurance. Right. So there's, got, there's to me, I was right. in Australia for a year, and 
you know, they have a Medicare, Medicare for all kind of deal. And there's also private right. insurance that kind of you can well, use. But everybody, nobody worries about losing the job. or Right. The number one reason for personal bankruptcy in the U.S. is medical. Um, I've read some article about, about how much, um, you know, the average like, staggering amount of money the average person spends in America in their lifetime on, on health care. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, we're the only country where it is part of our capitalist economy. Other capitalist systems in the world don't use it as a profit-making machinery. Yeah, they've, they've, yeah, it's true. I mean, right, and that's you know that's the fundamental difference. And I think I don't know if you you know in the in the Russian and Soviet Union, people who were in medicine, there were really kind of two kinds of people. Either they were researchers and they had that scientific inquiry, or they really cared about people and the care you didn't go into it because it was going to make you money and of course in the united states there are people who you know young people you've, you got to have a mind for science you got to be motivated by that to go into medicine but at some point when you're deciding what's your medical specialty your focus how much money you can make or the idea that you're going to be you could be wealthy mm-hmm. brain surgeon right but uh, what's it called uh plastic surgery Ooh, that's the big one Right. Well, uh, we're coming up on an okay, hour. Okay, so been, we better. Be- this has actually been a great. We should do another one of these sometime because you're uh, you great stories and you're and you're. I mean, this has been almost an hour. It just goes by. So remember, I said thirty minutes, and you're thinking <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. now it's almost an hour. Yeah, my staff. One of the flaws at the beginning were standard legislative appointments are fifteen minutes, and I can't do fifteen. Yeah, minutes. no, I, oh, I couldn't. <laughs> I, I couldn't do that. Thirty are my short appointments. That's, well, that's good. That's that's. There's something to say to that. Yeah. Um, all right, Representative uh, Hannon, thank you so much. Uh, Juno Rep. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and we've met now here, and then we had the storytelling. So yeah. Hopefully and, uh, our, our next time we can do another podcast, or maybe I'll see you in Anchorage. if you're. Yeah, I get through Anchorage quite a bit. I'm sure that I'll be there during the interim. And it's actually been a pleasure to see you at work and um, meet you because, of course, there's much about you that is people think they know because you're a, a big presence in the social yeah, no, media and blogger sphere. And a lot, lot of things get said about me that well, well p- p- I mean you too, I'm sure you know. Yeah, but you, there's a lot more dimensions to it. I appreciate that. Well, it's fun yeah. being here, and it's uh, great to get to know you. And then our one more story I'll tell. We were you were, you speak Russian a little bit, and we were on the floor there. Uh, it was a few months ago, and I said to you, you know, Dobrutra Kagila, and you respond, and this this. Woman, I don't know if you heard her. She says, "Oh, what? What is you speaking Russian?" Kind of concerned, and I said, "Yeah, yeah." And, and she's like, uh, "Are you? What is this kind of joking? Is this collusion?" I go, "Don't worry, she's a Democrat. It's fine." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Democrats, we can't collude you with can't anybody. Collude with the Russians. <laughs> we can't conclude, conclude, collude with each other. We, we, we've, we've had several instances where we've spoken Russian in the hallways, and people are like, "Hmm." Yeah going on there secret pig latin yeah secret secret russian language secret russian spies okay well all right uh, thank you so much Representative, i really appreciate the taking you taking the time and um i'm hopefully hopefully we'll do this in the future again all right all right folks and if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me get a hold of me and we'll talk to you next time Landline.